You're listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. For more information, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk. Okay. So the reading today, we're starting this new um, series on the book of Daniel, which I really like. Some of my heroes in this book. Uh, And the reading today is from chapter 1, the whole of chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God, These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenes, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude of every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Amongst these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel the name Belteshar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have had my head up because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the, ro- of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine, and they were able to drink and give them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. 
the king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So Jamie's going to preach for us now. I'm just going to pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jamie. And we ask that you would use him now to speak to us so that we can understand what this word means to each of us and collectively, that we may put it into practice for you. Amen. Good to be with you all today on the Lord's Day. hope this finds you uh, well and able to focus on this morning's uh, time together and message and not looking uh, too far ahead of the day. So here we are, we're starting uh, Daniel, this is our new uh, series and really looking forward to it, I think it has a lot to say even though it was written many years ago into our culture and our context today. Uh, Some home group notes in the package will be coming around shortly, uh, perhaps next week and we'll start that the week after next because next week we have something on as a church family. But one of the things that we'll be referring to over this series will be looking at this uh, which will form, form most of our our home group studies. It's an exposition, it's a commentary written by a chap called Daniel Akin and other people like David Platt and Tony Marida. It's a really good, helpful, practical resource and that's what we're hoping to to get out of this uh, series together. Coming to God's word, learning from it, Christ being exalted and our lives being lived out for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we're really looking forward to starting that. Uh, Now let me me, uh, start by introducing somewhat by Uh, saying what I saw in an article yesterday. It was an article talking about our Prime Minister's uh, faith. And it was quoted as saying the following. It said, a friend of his once told me he suspected that Johnson subscribed to a pre-Christian morality system with a multitude of gods and no clear set of rules. I put this to the Prime Minister, but he dismissed the notion. Christianity is a superb ethical system. And I would count myself as a kind of very, very bad Christian. He told me, no disrespect to any other religions, but Christianity does make a lot of sense to me. Well, if you weren't reassured, maybe that helped, or maybe it didn't. Okay, it said, uh, and then I was doing a bit of digging around, looking up some more about Boris Johnson, his background, something of his fair. I came across another article, and it was entitled, it was a Christian one, to be fair. It was titled, If I were accused of being a Christian and had to stand trial, would there be enough evidence for a jury to convict me of being a Christian? And then it detailed all of our prime ministers. It said, Theresa May, famously the daughter of a vicar, said Christianity was part of me and helps to frame her political approach. David Cameron said he was evangelical about his Christian faith. Look, listen, I'm not giving my commentary. I'm just telling you as it says in the article, okay? Gordon Brown once wrote of his regrets of not being more open about his faith while in office. Tony Blair said he prayed about the decision to go to war on Iraq and believed God would ultimately judge him for that decision. And what about Boris? Well, in the article, this article, it says, well, he he once compared his faith to the radio reception of uh, Virgin Channel in the Chilterns. 
pretty patchy and easily lost. So there we go. And it left, it left me thinking, looking at all of these politicians, these people in places of influence, uh, talking about their faith, and some of them in particular thinking, how on earth is that type of faith, how on earth is a faith that isn't sure, that's patchy, that sits on the fence, going to stand up in today's society, right? How on earth is that type of a I'm not sure faith going to stand the test of time and given our context today, given how pluralistic we've become, how many other religions are on the scene, how atheism is rising in some circles, the idolatry of self, putting self above others, nationalism even creeping over and taking precedence over our Christian faith. How do we live in a compromised culture like that? Is by uh, compromising is by having a faith that sits on the fence going to cut it against that tide to which I would say no you will get chewed up and you will get spat out how then do we live in a compromised culture how should God's people respond to all of the challenges that we see going around in our world today We're following God, we're being a Christian, we're standing for Christ is being increasingly marginalised. Three options, as I see it, you can either deny this is even happening as Christians and just sort of keep your your head down and just crack on, trying to to keep to your Christian faith in some way and not trying to, uh, to stick your head above the parapet in any way and just sort of sitting on the fence and coasting by We can assimilate to the culture, we can become like it and change and give up our Christian values, or thirdly, we can stand firm. Enter Daniel. Now, Daniel is a bit of a a context for you. Daniel is a book, as we have it anyway, of 12 chapters. It's generally broken down into two parts. Chapters 1 to 6 being the stories that we like doing in Sunday school. And the latest six, about visions and prophecies, we don't even talk about generally in church, let alone Sunday school. But there are several things going on through this book. We shall see over the coming weeks how God elevates his servant Daniel to a position of influence. And there, in and of itself, is a good challenge for us, particularly those in the business world and those with positions of influence. God has positioned you there for a reason, and we will see that in the life of Daniel. Daniel was someone who had a unique gift in to interpret the times. We must be people that do not bury our heads in the sand, but who interpret the times, who understand that there is a great spiritual battle going on, warring for the souls of men and women and for children. Later on in the book, we will see how frighteningly accurate Daniel is in predicting the arrival of the Messiah of, 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 the, Messiah of the one called the Son of Man. Frighteningly accurate. But here today, in chapter 1, the main theme of the book, something I want us to see yet again, is a God who, despite awful things happening and awful times going on, is still in control. He is sovereign over all of the nations, all empires, over all history. And this should encourage us today, church. Brothers and sisters, we should be encouraged by this fact that God is Lord over all. Because if that's true, if he is true over the past, if he is true over all history and all empires, and if he is true over the life of Daniel, then that means he is Lord over our current, even our current global situation today. And I feel emboldened to highlight that as we begin our study. 
Over the last 15 months, we have been trained to look very meticulously at the facts and what is seen. And I think what has happened to us as believers is a dulling and blunting of our faith, a disbelief of the unseen, the Christian's unseen reality, our faith. Over a period of time, hope has turned to pessimism and doubt and joy and expectation to sorrow and complacency. But today what I see from the text is a betrayal, uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is, is showing us a God who is above, before, and beyond all things, even what we're going through today, yeah? A God who is above it all. A God who cannot be domesticated, though we would try and have him be. He cannot be put in a box. He is great and he is awesome and he is before, above, and beyond all things. Nothing is outside of his control. Nothing is beyond his reach or ability to change with one word, life. We must rediscover and believe that about our God. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that our God is a great and awesome sovereign God? And some of us have, and it's understandable when we've seen everything that is going on. Some of us have been overwhelmed by the waves of the past year to the point where we have even lost sight of Jesus, Lord over the waves. The one who has all authority. In chapters 4 and 5, we will hear a phrase that is repeated four times in just those chapters. It is the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. The Most High is the, is the sovereign Lord over all things. Sorry, to quote it exactly. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. Let, let, let's say that. Let's repeat that quietly. Quietly, behind your masks. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. He is. He is. He is. And it also goes on to say, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. Which is to say, in New Testament currency, currency, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, and the future belongs to him. Amen? The future belongs to Christ. But more on that later, because not only do I want to appoint us to a sovereign God today, who is sovereign king over all, I want to give you a shining example in Daniel, God's man, of how it is possible, brothers and sisters, how it is possible to, to live faithful lives amidst growing hostility, as it was for Daniel, it is for you today, by the Holy Spirit's help to live faithful lives in a hostile environment, in a, in a culture that would defy and deny God. Now, the way in which uh, he was going to, uh, to do that, to bring conflict and bring suffering to, um, to, to, his, to his people, the way in which we see that worked out is through the Babylonians. It's done through the great king, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you know nothing about Nebuchadnezzar or the Babylonian Empire, uh, you would have heard of them, I'm sure. Having taken over the Babylonians, having taken over from the Assyrians and preceding the Persians, you've probably seen films of them, the Babylonians were an epic, mighty military force. 
Uh, in fact, at the time that we, that we see here, they were the largest city that had ever existed. It was known for its great beauty. This was signified by the great river Euphrates running through it, seeing the river Euphrates. And also there are many, it's become a, a bit of a phrase, isn't it? there are many hanging baskets. It symbolized beauty in Babylon. But it was, it was not just a symbol of beauty, but it's also one of strength. It had huge fortified gates and walls running ab- around it. Now, I'd recommend, if you're able to, a trip down to, uh, to London, uh, to the History Museum, where you'll see the replica of some of these gates down there and some of these walls and some of these artifacts. If you want to concentrate, I'd recommend you don't go down with five children with you, okay, like I was trying to do. But it's wonderful. You can get some sort of a scope of the replica of what it must have looked like. But it was a place that represented not just beauty and not just strength. It's actually mentioned throughout the Bible, Babylon, as being there in the beginning. From Genesis, we see that in the story of the Tower of Babel, from where its name comes from. Where in the building up of this tower, they sought to defy God and make their way uh, by themselves without him. And also, we see it all the way up into Revelation, where it symbolizes rebellion. It symbolizes arrogance against God. Even to this day, we see that same spirit at work today in the world, an uprising that would seek to shake its fists at the heavens and defy the one true almighty God. That spirit is still at work. Now, when you put all of these factors together, strength, beauty, size, arrogance, what you have is a mighty powerful force. And this meant it was a devastating time for Judah, the southern kingdom. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, having sorted out Egypt, the once superpower of the, of the day at the Battle of Carchemish, he now focuses his attention on going towards Jerusalem, the holy city, which he literally pounds to nothing and ransacks, taking all the artifacts, as you see in the text, out of the holy temple. The first seven verses begin by telling us what that looks like. Now, as the son of an immigrant, I can tell you that my mum's, and this is not an advert, I can tell you that my mum's family are very grateful to the UK, actually, for the opportunities that they gave my granddad, my grandmother, my mum and all my uncles and aunties. But the Babylonians' policy on foreigners was actually really quite different. They were harsh. And if you come up, came up against them, they would take you out. And their strategy wasn't just to destroy those that would oppose them, but to take them away as captives, with particular emphasis on capturing the very best that the nation had to offer. So it would take the people that were highly skilled, most uh, uh, academically trained, and so on and so forth. They sought those out in the nations that they conquered. So verse 3, we see an example of that. These youth were trained up and then they were to be taught the way of the Babylonians. And amongst them, you see, verse 6, were, as it say, it says, amongst them were Daniel, and then skipping back to the other names, were uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were taken away. Now the question as we sort of use today as a bit of an introduction without going too deep into, into what it's actually saying, we'll do that in the coming weeks, but by virtue of, it, of an introduction... The question that we have today, bearing in mind how similar our context actually is to back then, is how can we come to the book of Daniel and learn from their response to being in a a compromised culture, and how can we apply that to today? How do they respond to unimaginable times? Verse 8 says, but Daniel. But Daniel. But Daniel what? What did he do? How did he respond? 
and the book of Daniel will help us to understand that question. How do we as God's people live in a compromised culture, in a culture that would have you indulge in its choice meats, figuratively speaking, in its pleasures and in its ideals? How can you learn from the book and the person of Daniel? Will he deny? Will he sit on the fence? Will he assimilate and become like the culture? Or will he stand firm? Now, to do so, I'm going to look at just three points. There are more. you find the rest in your, your home group notes. Just three points for us to, to look at today. And I think the first one, if we're lucky, might even come up on the screen. Number one, God may sovereignly send you to a difficult place to spread his name among the nations, among the nations. God may send you to a difficult place, we keep it on number one, to spread his name among the nations. Now, in the first few verses alone, we are introduced to some major hitters, aren't we, in the narrative. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, in charge of the Babylonians, the most powerful nation and most powerful military in the world, besieging the great city of God, Jerusalem. What we see is what appears to be a tale of two stories. Babylon representing evil, conquering over Jerusalem, God's holy city, was supposed to be holy and pure. It would seem, if I was just to come in and, and read it straight away, with no perhaps uh, understanding, it would seem that it was a defeat outside of God's control. This great temple built by King Solomon, looted and all of its artifacts shipped away to the temple of their false gods, their main god being Marduk. It seems like a victory over God and over God's people, doesn't it? And yet, look hard enough. And what you actually see is despite all of these factors at work in the text, is actually a God who is in control of the narrative. So we see verse 2. Do you see those first two words, first three words? And the Lord, God, God is in control. God gives them over. It is God who did it. Now, does that make it any any easier to understand, knowing that God is sovereign and God's behind everything that happens? Well, not always, if we're being honest. Sometimes that's a difficult doctrine to get your head around, knowing that God truly is sovereign over everything. But the answer, brothers and sisters, is not to change the narrative. We might not understand why God allows such things. In the case here, we do, God's people and their sin. But there are times when it is not our sin. It's the result of living in a fallen world, which at times can be wicked, can't it? Which at times can be unfair. But as we read through the scriptures, we see so many examples of this, of God's supremacy and God's sovereignty reigning over the unjust treatments of his saints. Look at the story of Joseph. Look at the story of Job. What we see is not a God who is the author of evil. There's nothing evil in God at all. God is good and God is perfect and God is light. But what we need to understand is during these difficult times and during our difficult times, God is sovereign and God is always at work, even in the evil. Why? The Bible tells us the scriptures point to it being first and foremost for his glory. 
In everything he does, he will bring glory to his name. He is God, and it is his prerogative to do so. Does that make him an egomaniac? No. Why? Because out of that, out of that desire to, to see that, no matter what, may God be glorified, may God be honoured. So I see that first and foremost. For that to be first in our lives, to be first in your lives, out of that, the scriptures tell us, comes true enjoyment and satisfaction and purpose for ourselves. You see, not only is God at work to bring glory into his name, secondly, we see in the Bible a God who is at work, purposing everything to be for the good of the people that he loves, who he calls his children. That's you and that's I. God is at work. You must believe that. You must, you must trust in that. Even when things aren't making sense, that God is at work behind it all. And when we get these two things right, when we want to see God's glory, no matter the cost, and when we, when we know God to be God for who he is, and he is for his people, he is for me, he is for me, he is for you, then we can begin to make sense of whatever comes our way. And it's a life's journey but we can begin to make sense of our current circumstances and we can say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of God forever. And we can say with Joseph, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Daniel's life testifies to this. It's even what his name means. God is my judge. Not just in the sense that God will judge me for my sins, but that he will judge what is best for me. He will judge what is best for me and I will trust him. God may send us or allow us to end up in great difficulties, but I will trust that he will not abandon me as he did not abandon even his rebellious, sinful people here in the text. How much more will he not certainly, certainly not abandon nor never forsake those that love him and call him Lord? Now, that's not the promise of an easy time or an easy life. Jesus said, count the cost. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must pick up your cross and follow me and you must count the cost. So first point, God may sovereignly, and that's the longest one, God may sovereignly send you to a difficult place to spread his name among the nations. God may have you in a difficult time or a difficult season to be a witness unto his great and awesome name. If that's you today and you're going for it, God is with you. So point number two, if you would please. Be prepared from the book. Be prepared for the challenges non-Christian cultures will throw at you to lead you away from God. Be prepared for the challenges non-Christian culture will throw at you to lead you away from God. That is a good warning for us today. For Daniel and co, that meant, verse 3, isolation. Verse 4, indoctrination. Verse 5, assimilation. Verses 6 to 7, confusion. What about us? We likewise are faced with the same dilemma. As you go into the world, as you go into your workplace... As you go into your schools or start something new, 
as you go about with your life in Stockport or Manchester or the northwest of England, you can almost guarantee that there will be some point in your life where you will be put in a dilemma whereby God's people and God's way of living is different to the values and pleasures of the surrounding culture. There is a tension at work between God's people being in this world, but not of it. We need to be reminded that we are in a war, not of foreign superpowers coming to assault us and take us captive, but a spiritual one. Where like Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem, Satan comes to you. We must understand this. We must prepare even our children for these things. That being a Christian in today's society, in today's world is difficult and you will, be, you will come up against times of compromise. You will be attacked. We must prepare our next generations for these things, for the schemes of the enemy and the challenges of going into the world where Christ has not yet come back yet. And so, and so bearing in mind, that's the world we live in, point number three, determine early in your life, determine in your life and in your heart that I will not compromise my convictions and my commitments to God. Determine in your hearts, in your minds, I will not compromise on my convictions and on my commitments to my Lord. Remember that verse, verse 8, but Daniel, presented with the problem, how does he respond in that circumstance, in that context, but Daniel. Daniel understood that in life, and the context here is choosing not to eat the food, drink the, the king's wine, and saying, put me to the test, I'm going to honour God on this one, I'm not going to bow, I'm not going to give in, I'm not going to compromise in any way, test me and see how it works out, yeah? Daniel understood that in life you simply cannot compromise, church, even on matters as trivial as food for him. Even in a foreign country, when seemingly attractive opportunities present themselves, the first thing Daniel was asking himself is, not, is this a career move, or how will I do out of this, but does it honour my God? Does it honour my God, this choice I am about to make? And because he was determined in his heart that this was his number one priority, oh God, help us, help that to be in our minds and in our conscience and in our spirits, so your name, your glory be our number one priority. Because as it was for Daniel, he would not compromise on any of these lesser things, no matter how small. You see, we are not so dissimilar a situation to Daniel, are we? Babylon, remember, isn't just a historical city, it's an attitude, it's a spirit at work seeking to defy God. It's at work now in our workplace. It's at work now in our society. It's at work now in our politics. It's at work now in our marriages. It's at work now attacking our, pu our purity, our pursuit of purity and holiness. It's at work attacking our minds. Did God really say? Always seeking to draw us away from God, rebelling. There is an enemy who would seek to take us captive, that would seek to throw us off track. That's what it's like living in the world. Let's be real about this. And again, we must come to a place of realisation that we, like Daniel, are people in a foreign land, but it's for a limited time. They are to be away for 70 years, and we are here for a limited time. Don't get too comfortable. Don't be, get too comfortable at home. Christ is coming back. 
Peter in 1 Peter says that you are elect exiles. You are God's chosen people and you are here on earth for a period of time. You are sojourners, if you like. You are exiles. That is to say that this is not our home. Your true home, if you love Christ, is in heaven with God. That's where we are heading. There's a lot of press about this right now, post-Brexit, what type of status foreign residents have in the UK. Okay, if you were to look at ours on our little visa card, it would say sojourners, permitted to live, temporary resident. 1 Peter 2.11 says, I turn there quickly. Beloved, Peter talking to the church, I urge you as sojourners, temporary residents here on earth, and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war, war, wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honourable, because God is coming back. So, we are called to be in the world. We are called to not be like the world. We are called to live as God's people, whose hope is in Jesus we are called in all that we do and say and we seek to achieve to have Christ, number one, be honour, all honour and glory be unto him. And part of that means determining in your heart that you will not compromise. Whereby, for Daniel, uh, that meant he had to make tough calls. It may mean looking at the company you keep. It may mean looking at what you're watching on TV, what you're listening to, the people you're hanging out with, the actions you're doing. We cannot be people that compromise. And, you know, I'm, I, I like a laugh. I like to go out. I like a pint and all the rest. I'm not suggesting that we suddenly turn into to crazy sort of locked away people. We're, that's not what we're called to do either. We're called to be in the world, to be witnesses to Christ, but not like it. And we see the result of this. The result of Daniel committing himself, not compromising, verses 14 to 16, that he was blessed physically, we see 17 and 20 that he was blessed, that God blessed them mentally. Verse 17 that God blessed them spiritually. And verse 18 to 21 that God blessed them socially. Now, of course, are, are those things guaranteed to those who follow Christ in this life? Not all of them, though. But quite clearly, we can see that God is a God that loves to bless his children that are obedient to him. God loves to bless. And we should want to position ourselves in a place where, or we shouldn't want to position ourselves in a place where because of our disobedience, God cannot bless us. And we see here Daniel, who, who would not compromise, who loved God, who followed God, and was blessed as a result of it. But the point that we've seen so far, before I get accused of being a heretic, of a prosperity preacher, which I am not, the point we've seen so far is not the elevation of these, these gifts and these blessings, above actually knowing and being determined in our heart that come what may, may God's name be honoured. The point that we've seen so far again and again and we shall see again and again, whether in the fiery furnace or in the lion's den, is a settled heart that says wherever I go, whatever happens to me, come what may, I am living my life for God. Is that our response here this morning? Whatever comes our way, I am living my life for God. God. The very fact, Lord Jesus, that you should even save me is enough for me to worship at your feet with a satisfied heart. 
The very fact that you would send your son to die on a cross for me, a rotten sinner, that you would go through that pain and that misery and the agony and the torture of the cross for me, who would defy you, who would rebel against you, that you would come and do that for me is enough. May my heart find satisfaction in that in knowing what you have done for me and in who you are. But to think also what lay ahead, what awaits me, Christ in heaven, is infinitely more better than anything this world can offer us. So determine early in your life and in your heart that you will not compromise your convictions and commitments to God. Okay, there they are the three points. Let's go through them again. You might have to skip back. Number one. God may sovereignly send you to a difficult place. He may have you in a difficult time, even right now, to spread his name, to be a signpost to the gospel of how great he is. Point number two, be prepared for the challenges non-Christian cultures will throw at you. Be aware of the battle that we're in. Do not bury your head in the sand. Be aware of the times. There is an enemy out there, the culture that we're in, trying to pull you and lead you away from God. And then point number three, our response to that is determining, determine in your life and in your heart that you will not compromise. I will not compromise on my convictions and my commitments to God. So let's wrap that all up and praise the King. I, I know today that many of you, dear brothers and sisters, like Daniel, it, it feels like, uh, and I know uh, that your life has crumbled around you through certain sets of circumstances. For some, that's been through some of the most intense moments of your life over this past 15 months. For some, it's just been surviving through this last year and a half. For some, it's felt like being in captivity. Others of you in your prosperity, maybe you've denied or you've assimilated to culture and you haven't determined or you've compromised in different ways. And you know that's you. What we see in chapter 1 today Chapter 1 of Daniel is firstly that God is sovereign. God loves his people. He's for you. He's for his people. Nothing is outside of God's control. He's Lord over history, Lord over the nations, Lord over the UK government, Lord over this pandemic, Lord over your pain, Lord over your suffering. The challenge today, if we know that and we believe that, is how are we as God's people going to respond? And today we've seen an example of how Daniel does. Like Daniel, we need to understand what it means and what it looks like to live good, faithful, clean lives in a pluralistic, self-centered, godless place like Babylon. In godless workplaces and schools, how to conduct ourselves in private. When to challenge and when to speak up and when to defend. How to engage in a culture that is increasingly post-Christian by not shying away or remaining silent or compromising, but by being like Daniel. Reaching out evangelizing, trusting that God is still working good in the evil, still changing the most stubborn of hearts, even leaders, even the most powerful leaders in the world like Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because he is Lord. He will be glorified. The future belongs to him. And he still uses those who see themselves as faithful sojourners who will not bow the knee. I finish... Uh, there's a, a little hymn going to come up here for us to just try and respond in some way. That's like uber small font. Hopefully you can read that. It's like going to Specsavers, isn't it? You feel like you're sitting at the back reading the last line. That's quite small. 
But anyway, th this, this hymn was, uh, was sung by a lady, um, a lady called uh, Jodie Tarder Erickson. And some of you know a little bit about her, her story. At 17 years old, she, she dove, I think it was off, her, off of a cliff, and the water was really shallow, shallow and it left her as a quadriplegic, quadriplegic uh, seriously, dramatically changing her, her life. Now, she grew up as a, as a good Christian, believing in the sovereignty of God, but now she was being tested, and she was going through it. Now, suddenly, everything had been uh, taken away from her, and she said sovereignty of God felt, felt scary, but then when she came back to it again and she realized that God truly is in control, even over this. And even over this, he can still use me and be glorified and I can find joy in his name. She wrote, I could do nothing but yield to Romans 9.20. Praying with all my heart, O oh Lord, you are the potter. I am the clay. And if I must stay in this wheelchair, make me a vessel of honor. Teach me how to be pleasing in your sight. And so we've got some verses up there. I'm going to encourage us to stand right now. I wondered if we can say them together, if you'd like to stand. This was a, a hymn that she, uh, she sung. I think you can find it on YouTube or something. And we don't have to do this out loud. You can do it from your heart. You can speak it audibly as you wish. Don't get too carried away. Uh, but before we do, let's just bring our hearts, bring our minds before Christ. Let's think over those things. God is sovereign. God is for you. Hallowed be your name, Lord God. Lord God, where, where I am in my workplace, in this place you've called me to live, at home, in school, wherever I am, whoever I talk to, Lord, help me to understand that you have put me here for a reason. I'm not here by accident. I'm here because the divine creator has put me here. Help me to be a light. Lord, help me. Prepare me. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to take up the armor of God. Help me to be a witness. And help me to stand firm by your spirit's enabling through the power of your word for everything that would lead me away from God. And then, Lord, also, I'm sorry. Let me take the opportunity to repent right now if you know you've allowed compromise into your life. Repent of those things. God is so good and he's so gracious and he's a loving God and he will forgive. You ask God to forgive you for your compromise and ask him to help you to be a person, a man or a woman or a child of conviction committed to the king. Lord, we pray as we do these things, as we decide them in our hearts for your Spirit's help, we need your help, Lord. Help us to be faithful. Help us to walk this out. Help us to be determined. And when we fall short, Lord, let your Spirit pick us up, prop us up. We want to live for you. We want to be strong and courageous for you now, today, in a time such as this. Lord, would you draw close to anyone for whom that is their heart this morning, I pray. Let it be according to your word and for your glory. Amen. Uh, if you can, it is a good test, so I'll give you that. Let's, let's try and, 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 uh, and say this together. Uh, my Jesus, as thou wilt, O may thy will be done. Into thy hand of love, I would my all resign. 
through sorrow or through joy, conduct me as thine own, and help me still to say, My Lord, thy will be done. My Jesus, as thou wilt, thou seen through many a tear, let not my star of hope grow dim or disappear. Since thou on earth hast wept and sorrowed oft alone, if I must weep with thee, my Lord, thy will be done. My Jesus, as thou wilt, all shall be well for me. Each change in future scene, I gladly trust with thee. Straight to my hope above, I travel calmly on and sing in life or death, my Lord, thy will be done. And God's people said, You have been listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. To find out more about us, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk.